Thank you, worship team. Now, just before we dismiss Bridge Kids, and while you're turning to Luke chapter 19, um, I, we don't usually show favoritism here, but I will just for a minute. We have a, one, of our, uh, one of my favorite people is having a birthday on Tuesday, April 16th, and it is her 95th birthday, and her name is Lila Manor. And we have flowers out at the table uh, in honor of her, and we are just delighted that she's been a part of the bridge. She's been, a part, she's been praying for the bridge years before we existed, and she even prayed for Sue and I years before we ever got here. She prayed for us by name because she used to pray for all the pastors in the district, and uh, we're grateful to have Lila as a part of the bridge. And I'm... By the way, I am not projected to live until I'm 95. All the stats show I won't make it. So, Okay, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 19. This is called The Final Approach. How does it feel to have everybody leave the room when you get up? Luke chapter 19, I want to begin reading at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is Palm Sunday. That is what is called the triumphal ender entry, the final approach to Jerusalem. It was Jesus's last trip. And uh, today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the resurrection, and I'll be presenting the gospel, so I hope uh, you will invite your friends to come and be a part of it. So this, this would be Easter week, and I know you just like to jump into the whole story and trace it down so we could get to the resurrection on Sunday morning. And that's five and a half chapters. And the way they did this in the old days, they just had an hour sermon every night until you got to Sunday morning. And we would make it. But we're not going to do it that way. Um, so this is Palm Sunday. Now let's, let's get into it here. 
First, on July 24, 2013, a passenger train carrying 218 people derailed in northwestern Spain. 79 were killed, 66 were hospitalized. When the engineer was asked what happened, he told the officials, I can't explain it. I still don't understand. I, I didn't see. I just don't know. He said, the journey was going fine until the curve came up. Then all he could think of was, oh my God, the curve, the curve, the curve. I won't make it. A little research, a little investigation into this accident quickly showed video footage that proved that the train was traveling 119 miles an hour when it came into that curve. And the speed limit for that curve was just under 60 miles an hour. Now the train was designed for speeds up to 130 miles an hour. But those tracks and that curve was not designed for that kind of speed. And this engineer, who was a 30-year veteran of the National Rail Company, ignored the boundaries that were given to him to conduct safe travel. God has given boundaries to us for our good. God has given boundaries to us and for all people. And if we ignore them, the consequences can be deadly. God's given us instructions in his word about faith and about how to have a relationship with him. God has given us instructions about marriage and um, how to have a healthy marriage. And he's given instructions about morality and immorality. He has given instructions about love and kindness and compassion and anger. He's given instructions about truth and honesty and integrity. When we are careless, we can go off the tracks, which can lead to a train wreck. Israel, in the Old Testament, was given tracks to run on that God had given them. They, they were given special opportunities for God. They were given leaders and land and a promise of a Messiah, and they were given God's word. They ignored God's boundaries and often created their own. And by the way, that's really dangerous when we create our own boundaries and decides that God's boundaries don't work for us. So in verses 28 through 44, which is more than the passage I just read, this is Jesus', Jesus journeys to God's city. Jesus journeys to God's city. This is called the triumphal entry. God's city is Jerusalem. God's city is where the, his temple was built for him, set apart for him, where he would be worshipped and where he would be honored and where people uh, could experience uh, have a relationship with him. We find the location in verses 28 and 29. After Jesus had said this, and by the way, what did he just say? Well, it was the parable of the minas in verses, chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. That's where we were last week. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Going up, remember? It's the elevation thing. Everything goes up to Jerusalem. 
as he approached Bethphage, a small village, and Bethany, another small village, to the hill called of the Mount of Olives. They are now very close to Jerusalem. They had been in Jericho. Remember at Zacchaeus' house? They'd been in Jericho, 18 miles away, moving toward Jerusalem. They have to go up to Jerusalem. Now they're within two miles of Jerusalem. Um, and we should probably show the map, you know, just, just to say we did. So uh, Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters in the north. He travels down south along the Jordan River, comes to Jericho, and now he is in Bethany. Why do I know that? Luke doesn't mention this, but in Bethany, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We have to remember that the writers of the Gospels had a separate purpose for why they wrote. They were writing to different audiences. So Luke doesn't include everything. John doesn't include everything. Matthew and Mark have different things. And Luke doesn't include uh, Matthew and Mark don't include the Lazarus story as well. Lazarus was raised from the dead in Bethany. And that's where I think they are right now. Uh, let's move into the... There we go, a little more, a little closer. There are two villages. They're both... We could actually maybe even put them closer together because they're both kind of suburbs of Jerusalem, little villages. We don't know where Bethphage is today. We know where Bethany is. Uh, his instructions in verse 29, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village. Probably they're in Bethany. Probably go to Bethphage ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a coal tied there which no one has ever ridden. So there's a, an animal picked out for Jesus, selected and set apart for him for his purpose. It's never been ridden on. It's an unused animal, so to speak. And that that's no big deal, but, you know, this has been coming for hundreds of years. This, this plan goes back to Zechariah. So we have an animal never been ridden on. When Jesus entered the world, he came from a, a mother who had been a virgin. Never used, so-called, set apart for the purpose of bearing Jesus. And even at the very end, Jesus will be laid in a tomb where no man has ever been placed, a freshly carved tomb set apart for Jesus, which was another fulfillment of prophecy. And that's not a big deal because, you know, in our, we don't like to use graves over and over again, but they did in their culture because they were carved out of stone and they were usually caves and they would place a body in there for a time where it would decay and then some family members would have to come in and take the bones and put them into something, some kind of a jar, place them off to the side until somebody else used the location. So Jesus uh, said, um, bring this colt, untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, just say, the Lord needs it. Um, and so, this is a good little example here. You're a disciple. Jesus tells you to do something. What do you do? Well, you do what they did. They followed his instructions. That's called obedience. It's also called living by faith when you, when you take God as his word and you follow through. 
You know, what if they said, well, I'm busy, I have other things to do, or I didn't like the way you did that, I, I, brought, I brought an ox instead. Um, so they bring this uh, young donkey, this colt. Those who were sent ahead found it just as he had said, oh, just like Jesus said, what do you know? And they were untying the colt. The owners said, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it just as Jesus said. And so, um, verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Disciples did what Jesus asked. Pretty simple faith. And they found out that Jesus' words were trustworthy. And they put their outer garments on top of the, the, this little donkey. And that would have been like a saddle. It made it more comfortable. It was an honoring thing to do. Um, Verses 36 through 38, we have the welcoming committee, his welcome committee. Verse 36, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This is the beginning of a parade. We can't sort of imagine how exciting this was. This was a really big deal that had been brewing in the background as they went along. You know, Jesus had followers all the time. When he went somewhere, this is his third year. People came wherever they could find him. They just liked to hang out. They waited for him to talk. They waited for him to do a miracle. And so not only that, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. So whenever there's a festival like this, especially the Passover, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims come from the Roman Empire and pour into Jerusalem to be a part of it. And so all these pilgrims are coming in, um, and coming from Jericho would have been like a, a main, main road coming into uh, to Jerusalem. And so there are people who've heard about Jesus. Some of the people were there when he did a miracle. Hey, what about, did you hear about Bartimaeus and Jericho? Did you hear about the the demon-possessed man in, in the Gadarenes. What about Capernaum? Did you hear about the lepers who were healed? Did you, did, you, did you hear about the little girl that was raised from the dead? Uh, did you hear about... No, but I, I heard about Lazarus. What were you, did you hear about he's fed 5,000 people? No, but I was there the day he fed 4,000 people. So there's a lot of information floating around. Stories, people are talking, thousands of people... And all of a sudden, this event just bursts up. It just happens. When he came near the place where the road goes down the mount. So they've been going up, but now they're going to go down into a ravine from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a great hangout for Jesus and his followers. They're going to come back here during the week. So they're going down this road a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. That's a proper response. Revelation, response. God has revealed his power through the miracles. Response, praise, worship, thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for answering prayers. This is an exciting moment. And then... Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Where do they get that insight? 
He's the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a special promise one from the Old Testament. And you've got probably thousands of people in this. It's a parade. And he's on a road, and they're lined the road, and they put down their garments. Luke doesn't tell us this. John does. John tells us they put also, also they put down palm branches. They were paving the road in honor of this great king who was coming to Jerusalem. This is exciting. Um, many of these are true, committed followers of Christ. I would guess some of them, maybe a very large number of them, are just caught up in the excitement. You know, you heard about this? Oh, no, I didn't hear about this. And now we're a part of it. And here comes Jesus and all this excitement and all this praise. And he's the king. And what do you mean king? What is that king? Well, he's the one who's going to kill all the enemies. Well, okay, I'm for him, you know. And let's put down palm branches. And all of this time, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. It's for the people of Jerusalem, rejoice greatly. That's exactly what they're doing. They're rejoicing. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah the prophet tells this hundreds of years before 4th, 5th century before the birth of Jesus and it's happening. And it's if Jesus is totally aware of it. Because Jesus has sent for the colt. They have to walk to another little village and bring it back. And he waits. And the disciples set him on the colt, on this little donkey. And he gets on. And now he's coming down the road. And everybody is praising him. And he's just walking, just coming through. And he knows what this is. He understands this moment. It must ha happen. The Lord needs it to happen. And verse 10 goes on. It says, uh, I will take the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. That, too, is a prophecy. And that's what people wanted to happen. They wanted this king to come into Jerusalem on that donkey and then overthrow and kill all the Romans and drive out all the war horses of Rome. That's what they wanted. This will be Revelation 19 when that happens. It will come, but it didn't come when Jesus came the first time. So many of the prophecies in the Old Testament look forward to the coming of Messiah, and they often put both a first and second coming together. Prophecy that was fulfilled, prophecy yet to be fulfilled. So this crowd, they're starting to think, is this it? Is this it? Is this the promised one? Is this the king? And he's going he's gonna to overthrow the Romans? And we are going to have the kingdom just like David, the great king of Israel, had where he was like the most powerful king in the world. That's what many are hoping for. 
Then we see his critics in verses 39 through 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, what are you thinking? Rebuke your disciples. See, the Pharisees kind of understand what's going on here. If Jesus parades into Jerusalem like this, that's kind of blasphemy from their understanding. Because if he's acting like he's this great king, he, who is he to, to fulfill prophecy or to say he's ful fulfilling prophecy? Well, he's God. He can do that. But they also have this problem. If we have a king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey proclaiming himself to be king and he's got all of these Jewish followers, what will the Romans do? That sounds like treason. And that's a political problem. So, Jesus says in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, if this crowd keeps quiet, the stones will cry out. This must happen, Jesus said. It's just welling up. This praise for the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. The promised one. He is there. It is real. And Jesus said, if, they, if we stop them, the stones will cry out. All of creation is waiting for Jesus. And, and there's a sense of timing right here. So just a quick application here from these verses. Uh, you know, there were at least three groups of people in this crowd, maybe even a fourth group. But the three groups that I see are the disciples, the committed followers of Christ. Some of them will die for this cause. They are in. They don't understand it all, but they're going to follow Jesus all the way. They took Jesus seriously. They sought to follow him every day. Then there were those in the crowd who were just kind of caught up in the emotion of the moment. They were interested in God. They were interested in who Jesus was. Um, and they would love to see Jesus overthrow the Roman government. And they're for him. And by the way, some of this crowd very likely were going to be there. This is Sunday during the week. On Friday, Jesus will be crucified. There was a large number of people there when Jesus was on trial, and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So were some of those the same people? Just caught up in the moment both times. Or were then there were the critics, those who openly were against Jesus, and thought he was a misguided religious leader. You know, we have people just like that today. Which one would you fit in? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? Or are you a fickle follower of Jesus, where you're for him when it's convenient, and you like to do your own thing when it's not convenient? Or are you just an open critic of Jesus? Verses 41 through 44, we come to his lament. As he approached uh, Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. It would be fair to say that he wailed over the city of Jerusalem. 
this is his final approach. He, has, he was born in Bethlehem, he lived in Nazareth, and he came back during his public ministry uh, to worship in Jerusalem. This is his final time. Jesus, as he's coming to the city, he sees the current reality. He understands. He knows people's hearts. He understands the religious leaders, the, the, community, the Jerusalem authorities, if you will. He knows their hearts. He knows them. He knows the situation. And Jesus also sees the future reality of this city. The next generation, 40 years later, this is what's coming. Verse 42, he said, if even you had only known on this day, because this is a unique day in, the, in world history. I wish I could have been there the day that Jesus was baptized. When the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Pay attention to him. I'm surprised the voice didn't come from heaven on this day and say, this is my beloved son. This is how special this moment is. And he said, even if, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's been hidden from your eyes. This day, the day of your visitation, that's another translation, the idea of when God visited the earth in the flesh and he comes now to his city. This opportunity before all of Israel, before the Jerusalem and all the religious leaders of Israel, and they had this opportunity, an opportunity for peace with God from the Prince of Peace. He comes in peace. He doesn't come in a final judgment to overrule, overthrow the Romans. He comes in peace to offer peace so that people can have peace with God and he will go to the cross to make it happen. And then he says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment. They're going to haul in dirt for this. They're going to build walls against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and the, and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, the time of your visitation. You didn't see it. It was marked out. It was communicated. Jesus came to... to share the good news, to proclaim the good news, the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus looked into the future, he was speaking of 70 AD. Titus, the Roman general, who would later become um, the emperor of Rome. He would lay siege on Jerusalem beginning in April 70 AD, and he would hold out and surround the city until September 8th, 70 AD, when the city was totally destroyed. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, was an eyewitness. Think about this. Josephus is very well known as a, as a historian, not a Christian. And he writes, 
while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. That's what's coming, 70 AD. Jesus has more to say about that in the coming weeks. So an application for us here. When you think about this, Jesus lamented over a missed opportunity. God gave his people a tremendous opportunity to have an encounter with the true and living God and to make things right from their past. And they missed it. And they're going to miss it. And that's why Jesus wept. He knew their hearts. He knew their history. He knew that in just a few days they would crucify him. They could have peace with God. But they think they have a better perspective than Jesus. They had better ideas and better plans than God. At this point, they go off the rails. They go out of bounds, and the train and they train wreck the nation. Jesus wept over their missed opportunity. Which raises a question for me. Does Jesus weep over missed opportunities that we have? Do we cause him grief because of missed opportunities? When we have an opportunity to speak for him, to speak up for him, when we have an opportunity to share the good news with some other person, not that Jesus said you had to go out and stand on the, pre, on the street corner and tell everybody they were going to hell. No, but as, as God nudges your heart and he, he gives you a little open door that you could speak for him, do we, do we lean into that? Do we take advantage of that? Um, when, when God prompts us to be faithful in following him, an opportunity to follow, even when we're tempted not to follow him, when God... Uh, prompts us to be generous or to be more generous? Do, do we just ignore him? When God prompts us to forgive someone, do we just ignore him? When, when God reminds us to be humble, you know, sometimes we get a little bit heady, a little bit puffed up, and God reminds us, tone it down a little bit, to be humble. That's why we're married, by the way. Uh, it helps a lot. When God reminds us to be honest, when we're tempted just to change the story so somehow we look better or that our situation looks better than reality. When God reminds us to be thankful, do we miss opportunities? In the last section, verses 45 through 48, Jesus arrives at God's temple. And so uh, we see first this purging 45 and 46, when Jesus entered the temple court. So he entered, that triumphal entry is on Sunday. This happens on Monday. We, we know that from Matthew. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. We don't have much information here from Luke, but we do have more information. If we jump to Matthew 21 and verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were buying and selling there he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So here's the situation. At the temple, 
there is a large court. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. And that was part of God's plan for the temple. And the Court of the Gentiles was for all people. You could be a non-Jewish person to come there and to pray, to hear the scriptures, to have relationships with other like-minded people. It was the court of the Gentiles. But in the first century, in the time of Jesus, the court of the Gentiles was a bazaar of selling animals and exchanging money. And here's how the system worked. Jewish people were to come to Jerusalem and worship at the temple and to bring in a sacrifice appropriate to their family. People from all over the Roman Empire came to do that. And you can imagine if somebody could travel, some of those people had wealth, and they came to Jerusalem and they didn't bring their animal from home. They bought one in Jerusalem. You could buy them at the temple in the temple courts in the days of Jesus. That's not the purpose of the temple. The temple was set aside for God and for worship. And so animals were being sold in the temple. Now this gets complicated because first you have to have permission to go there to sell your animals. So you have to buy a slot so that you can have your exhibit just like today. Where did the money go? The money went to the high priest and his family. In Jesus' day, there were two high priests. There was only supposed to be one, but there was father-in-law and son-in-law. They were the high priests. The money went to them and other needed priests because the priests could have the income. And, and so people came, and there was money to be made on selling animals at a high price, and there was money to be made on just having people there. So this is a, you're messing with their, econ their economy, and you're messing with their political way of doing things, and Jesus comes in, and he drives out everybody who's there inappropriately. Uh, verse 46, he says, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He quotes Isaiah 56, uh, verse 7, but let's look at Isaiah. And please, I've included verse 6 here. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him. You see, in the Old Testament, God welcomed non-Jewish people like us. We would be a foreigner. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. Next slide. These I will bring to my holy mountain, referring to Jerusalem and especially the temple, and give them joy in, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. That's what God intended. And it is not that when, when Jesus arrives. Malachi uh, writes about uh, this in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the fourth century before Christ, Malachi writes, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, that's John the Baptist. 
He is God's messenger who prepared the way for Messiah, the Christ, whose name is also Jesus. He prepared the way before the Lord. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. By the way, the messenger of the new covenant in his blood, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Next slide. So that's first century. John the Baptist, then Jesus cleanses the tem temple by driving out all of the money changers. He purifies it. He cleanses it. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launder's soap. It's sort of like he washed their mouth out with soap there. I, some of you won't understand that. but He, he refined them right on the spot. But that, this is more than that. This is when he comes a second time. He comes in judgment. Um, we see Jesus has opposition, verse 47 to 48. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Jesus was public. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't fearful. He knew he would be arrested. And he just stood up in the temple and taught about God and how to have a relationship with him. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. The religious leaders are conspiring to have Jesus executed. They just want to rid him, rid the nation. Verse 48, yet could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. He was really popular and people hung out with him. This fulfills a prophecy made about Jesus when he was eight days old. In Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Do we have Luke 2? There we go. So when, G when his parents brought Jesus to the temple, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. So uh, Simeon is, is telling Mary, and she, you know, she doesn't, it's just, this, he's just a little baby. We don't know what what's life is going to be like. And, and Simeon is telling Mary, he is going to divide people in Israel for and against, and that's where we're coming this week. There's going to be people for Jesus and there are people against Jesus, and ultimately they're going to say, crucify him. And that's what's going to pierce Mary's own soul deeply. She is going to stand before the cross one day and watch her son be executed, be crucified. Okay, application here as we come to the end. When you think about this, God set aside his temple for the purpose of worship. It was set apart. It was to be holy. And the purpose was for God. Um, let's make an application, see if this is too far for you. God designed your body as a temple to be for God, to be used for him. He designed you. He made you. 
He's given instructions for us, as well as boundaries for how we should live. For example, Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So God made our bodies to be temples of the Holy Spirit, and his instructions are, okay, think about all that you are. Think about your body physically, because God made it. It's important, and offer it back to him. That's a worshipful thing to do, setting it apart for him. Romans 6.13 tells us not to offer parts of our body to be instruments of wickedness. Body parts, not to be instruments of wickedness. Chapter Romans 6.14 instructs us to offer parts of our body as instruments of righteousness. This is going to impact our thought life, our choices, our sexuality, our eating habits, our relationships, our worship. Your body was made for God. Your body was made to have a relationship with God. Your body was made for sexuality when used for good. Your, God, your body was made for work. Your body was made for service. So if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, how then do you want to live? How do you want to handle your body? Do you, you want to steward your body well? Uh, or do you want to misuse it or abuse it? Do you let your body control you? Or is your body under the lordship of Christ? God loves us, and God has given boundaries to us for our good. Boundaries not only keep us from a train wreck, but boundaries provide the opportunity for us to be all that God wants us to be to be at a max for God, to, to honor him and to bring glory to him. When you think about it, God picked a lowly donkey to carry Jesus into Jerusalem. God has picked your body to carry Jesus to your world. Let's stand and pray. Father, as we look back at that first Palm Sunday, it's, it's hard to take in uh, all that was happening and, and what it meant in history. And yet there was a day that Jesus was rightly praised for who he is, at least to some extent. And people can soon forget when they're caught up in emotion. God, may we be like uh, disciples who are firmly committed in following Jesus, whatever that cost might be, that we be counted faithful, that when he gives us simple instructions that we just want to follow through, that we grow in our trust as we continue to get to know you. 
And Father, we want to offer ourselves back to you. We want to offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices. And if you can do that this morning, I just, just encourage you to be yielded to Christ and think of your entire body, all of your parts. Offer yourself to God. It's reasonable, it's logical, it's an act of worship. Father, thank you uh, that you've chosen us to bear Christ to our world. May we be found faithful. May you empower us. May you enable us. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.